Hi, and thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. We're your hosts, Matt Domney and Kyle Dobbs. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> we actually did have, do have one question that we need to ask you. Um, Kyle, this is what we got from the Dean and the Jeb podcast. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. 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 So we we got so we we decided on that one that you are like the litmus test of who's a good pet person or bad person in the <laughs> industry. So we oh, need to get screwed. like a, a like a compiled <laughs> list of who you actually dislike so we can all hate them too. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, Dean, Dean Jeb and I basically agreed that you're you're probably one of the nicest people we've ever met in the industry. And if you so it's like if if Mike doesn't like somebody they have to be a pretty big asshole. Like we probably shouldn't like them either <laughs> yeah. is, is the way we go about things. So that that's kind of the, where that conversation originated from. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I, did I tell you my social experiment I did with Lyle McDonald a couple of years ago? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm down oh, for no. any stories. With, with I'm Lyle. super excited about this. <laughs> I left him on my Facebook page and he started making these just really, you know, it's Lyle. He makes all these comments. And so I started posting about a program I had and he's like, Oh, how dare you sell stuff in fitness and blah, 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 blah. And I just wrote back. I'm like, so you're not buying the new program, Lyle. And he went off for like <laughs> five paragraphs of stuff. And the only reason I left him on there for a while was just to build up my muscle to criticism. Cause I don't give a shit what he says anyway, you know, it's just a good practice, but eventually I had to take him off because I had so many people emailing me and going, why is the weird man all mad at you? <laughs> <laughs> Why is he so angrily talking about all this? Why stuff is he you? so angry with yeah. you? And I just didn't want to answer all the questions from people who didn't know what was going on and weren't in the industry. So, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. that's one of the things. He's like the angriest person I've ever seen on any thread ever. Oh, God. He's, yeah, he, he's definitely, I mean, he's basically as angry as anybody would be if they were, you know, 40 years old and living with their parents, I think. So there's not, yeah, there, there's not, again, there's, there's a low threshold for that, I think at this point, but yeah, he, we, he got into it with me a little bit. Ah. Uh, same thing on Facebook, which is he, part of the reason yeah. I'm, I no longer even engage on Facebook. I'll basically look at it once every couple of weeks to make sure like I haven't been like spammed on my page yeah, or something. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely one of those things where it's just like, yeah, he will write books in the comments. Like, like literally just, it, it's, it's almost a representation of just having too much time. Oh, way and, too much time. And too much anger. And yeah. basically it's a really I, dangerous combo. What, what I did was there's a YouTube link where he is like singing and dancing with his cat. <laughs> And, I gotta find this now. And every time he commented on my page, I just, just responded <laughs> with the link from YouTube <laughs> of him like singing and dancing with his cat. And it and he eventually stopped. But it was that was one of my first ever like troll moves. Oh like yeah, it, it, I was I was pretty proud of it. That's a pretty powerful troll move too. I mean, it was. I think Pat was actually the one who originally pointed it out to me uh but I, once i saw it i was i, I was just I, uncomfortably like mystified by it yes and so anyone who is listening to this if you if you google or, or search on youtube 
Lyle McDonald and Cat, it'll probably pop up. <laughs> That's the one piece of homework that we have for everybody. Uh, yeah. Off of this. <laughs> yes. Also, by the way, we are recording now, so this whole yeah, thing is fine. being recorded because this is how professional we normally are. Um, so yeah, cool. getting to the getting to the 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 intro today, we have with us uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Uh, Dr. Mike, thank you guys for, for thank you for joining us. If you'd like to take a moment to introduce yourself and tell the listeners who you are, what you do, we would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate you guys having me on here. I'm an associate professor at the Kerrig Institute for Clinical Neuroscience. I run Extreme Human Performance, where I do a lot of online one-on-one coaching for training, nutrition, monitoring, health parameters, that kind of stuff. And then I also am an adjunct uh, instructor at Rocky Mountain University, creator of the Flex Diet Certification and the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. Some other random stuff, hang out in South Padre doing some kiteboarding, uh, teach for RPR once in a while when, I don't know, whenever we have live stuff going on again. <laughs> so you'll be back, what you're saying is you'll be back to work fully by like 2030. 2030, yeah, actually this year, this past year has been like busier than any other year just because, you know, about a year ago, all travel, we got back from Costa Rica and just everything got canceled. So I just said, screw it. I'm just, you know, everything got wiped out for the year. And then everyone's like, oh, hey, we need online stuff. Who's been doing online stuff for like a long time? So I did a lot of programs for other uh, places and stuff. Some went well, some didn't go so well. And uh, yeah, so it's been interesting to say the least. Which is the nature of anything online because you'll always get those people that sound super dedicated. Like I'm going to do every single thing that you tell me to do. And then you send them their program and you don't hear from them for like a month and they get back to you and like it, nothing was good. I, I hated everything. It's like, why didn't you communicate? Where were you? Like what happened? Here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For one-on-one stuff, I definitely charge to the higher end of the spectrum mm-hmm. and I keep lower clients. Although I did get up to 21, I think is where I've capped it at now, like 20. <clears throat> and that's good. Like I love it, but I don't know how people do like 60, 70, one-on-one, completely custom, all done by myself. It's, that just seems batshit crazy to me. Yeah, man. 15 is my number. Yeah. Like that's my max number for individual clients. And yeah, it's the same thing with the minute. Yeah. It's the same thing with mentorship stuff where I just, the, the quality of anything that I do just starts falling off a cliff. I, I feel like as soon as I get to that point where I just, it's just like, I'm done. I'm just mentally yeah. exhausted by it and fatigued by it. Um, yeah. A lot yeah. of it's what you enjoy too. Cause I found for a while I had a few more than that <clears throat> and it was good. And I could have definitely due to demand. I mean, I could have gotten more, but I realized I was right on that edge where, okay, now it's starting to feel like a little bit too much work and it's kind of taken away from other things. And, you know, similar to you guys, I just don't like that feeling of, okay, I'm just kind of going through the motions, doing the thing. And yeah. So I just kind of cut back. Right. And that's the thing is like, you want to, you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're doing well and you're doing to the best of your ability. So the more people you have, the less time you're going to be able to put into it and still do everything else that you want to do. And yeah. from what you've said, you do a lot of other things too. So this is just a very small portion of your, of your day-to-day life. So yeah. I think that'd be an interesting thing based off of the, the amount of things that you being like an adjunct professor at two different schools, running all these certifications and doing all this other stuff. I think that would be an interesting thing to talk about is like, what does your day-to-day look like when you're not kiteboarding down in South Padre? Yeah. So day-to-day at 
home, I'm one of those weirdos where I kind of have my little morning routine where I'll, I'll get up and go for a little walk. And then I'll usually do my cardiovascular stuff in the morning, some stuff on the rower, some stuff on the bike. Most days, not, not anything too intense, like rowing and maybe only do 1500 meters, nasal breathing, you know, bike 10, 20 minutes, maybe at most. And then I've got a freezer I converted into 38 degree cold water. So it's a chest freezer, like 15.6 cubic feet. So I'll hop in there for maybe a minute or so. Depends on what the temp is. I mean, I've gone up to six minutes at, you know, mid forties. Um, get out from there, normally do some meditation, write down. Uh, I've been trying to move reading for about 10 to 15 minutes in the morning. And then I'll try to start on, <clears throat> depending on the day of the week, most times I'll try to start on writing an article or doing a program or something that's more, I guess, kind of mentally heavy. I try at all possible not to check my email. Don't go on social media. I try not to be a distracted, kind of the more deep work uh, type stuff. And then usually lift mid-afternoon, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, uh, from one to three, sometime in there. And then try to do emails, follow-ups, uh, questions from certifications, that type of thing in the evening. And then my goal is to try to be done by six or seven. Sometimes I make it, sometimes I, I don't. Do a little walk in the evening, hang out, and go to bed. Yeah, you're you're one of the people that I wish was on social media more. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, like it's like this, it's this like catch 22, you know, where you know the the people who really really do have knowledge in a lot of areas and really do put out really good content. Uh, don't really do it that much on, especially Instagram. Again, like I'm not on Facebook yeah. that much. I know you're a little more active on that. Um, but it, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, I've, I've definitely recommended you to people or, oh, thank you. or, or tagged you into things or whatever. And people are like, Oh, like who is this guy? And it's the number one thing that I get. It's like who, who is this person? And I'm just, and I'm like, search him on podcast. Is the best way. And you know, it's my, it's funny. Like my favorite like story of you is, you know, the first time I went down to Costa Rica was like just that epic presentation spread that, that Ben had, where you know, you spoke, you know, Pat spoke, uh, Ben spoke, you know, Aaron Davis and, and Patrick Estes did a present. Just so many good people and everybody had these planned presentations and Mike literally just sat on a table with a whiteboard and did like an AMA for two hours <laughs> and literally just like wrote everything. Was that the supplement on. one? <laughs> yeah. It ended up being a lot of supplement stuff. And I was just, I was dumbfounded by like the amount of information just off the top of your head, unrehearsed, you know, unpracticed, you know, as you kind of went through that process. And it was such and again, not to say that more traditional presentations aren't, aren't impactful because they right. are, but it was just, it was such a, just a different experience based on everything else that was happening. My, my second favorite Mike T. Nelson story is, is <laughs> it's Costa Rica is us being stuck on the side of a Costa Rican highway for oh, yeah. being attacked by fire. <laughs> <ant>. <laughs> so, <laughs> when our, when our car caught on fire. So it's, I think that's one that bears repeating for everybody who hasn't experienced that one. Cause that story is pretty excellent. It's, it's a high bar, you know, and, and unfortunately I was the driver. Yep. Uh, but we do you, what was the make of that car? It was, it was like the Costa Rican version of like a little Suzuki 
yeah. something. Uh, it was like, like a Costa Rican Yaris. Yeah, like little <laughs> little hat hat car. And you know, one thing is like it was me, Mike, and and Rua Gilda, and Mike and I are both tall. Like we're very tall. Uh, Rua not so much, but that's. A, <laughs> he's handsome and he, and he uses big words so yes. we were we're in this car that's too you know too too small for all of us and getting out of the parking lot we couldn't i couldn't figure out how to do because again none of the signs are in english and there's no like explanation and they gave us a car on on top of that that was on empty so there was no gas in the car as well but you didn't really bother to look we probably oh, I, I, did, I also just assumed it would be full yeah, yeah that's that is a mistake on my behalf <laughs> uh and then we get we finally get on the highway and we just like smell smoke and we realized that like pieces were falling off of our car from underneath on fire and it had to pull over and to get to Ben's retreat was about what three hours somewhere in yeah. that range. You basically yeah. had to drive all the way across Costa Rica diagonal from San Juan down down to the the Gulf side, South Gulf side. And we were standing by the side of the road, getting honked at and yelled at by people uh, for for a good like a solid like two to three hours. It was oh, very, yeah, it was a while. It was, it was very hot, and there was one of the largest red ant like mounds probably five feet from our car and i remember like we one of us went over it was either you or rue i believe like and sat on the hill before we saw it and, and figured it out and yeah and, that was rue i don't think that was me but and then we figured it otherwise. out he, he had it. <laughs> it was the most it was a ridiculous experience all of our phones were dying so we had to like rotate who had whose phone off and Facebook Messenger was the only thing that we could actually contact people through because of cell service in Costa Rica. And by the time that we got picked up, it was like Ben's like kind of like his like organizational assistant, like the guy who kind of ran the show. And the poor guy like picked us up and his wife and kids were like in the car. Yeah. He was like on a family <laughs> date and had to pick us up and drive us all the way down to, to Ben's place. And the funny part is he, he looks under the car and we, we noticed just this pool of black, probably oil, yeah. and just this big black piece in the middle of it. And we throw him like, he's like, well, what's going on? I was like, we don't know. Here's what happened. And we show him, he, he looks under there and he goes, Yep, that's weird. <laughs> We're like, yep, that's definitely weird. He's like, that's supposed uh, to be in the car, not yeah. under, not the on car. the ground. Yeah. The funny Call part is, once we got a ride, he just left it on the side of the road. I don't know whatever became of it. We, I guess someone just picked it up or whatever. It might still be there, based on where we, based on where we were. It was. Uh, it's quite the experience, quite the way to cap off, you know, actually start the trip. And then obviously we didn't have a car to get back to the airport on the way back. So we all had to like carpool with like other people as well. And did you guys get yeah. the extra, extra insurance for the rental or did you guys have to pay like extra thousand dollars for the, uh, so for here, that? here's the, here's the other side of that, Matt is these weren't normal rentals. This was like a shady under the table. Uh, oh, gotcha. Yeah. With a uh, bit with Ben's uh, quote unquote Ben's people. Yeah. And gotcha. yeah. yeah so this was this was like we showed up and we paid the guys cash and then we like got in the car and and went so what you're saying is you 
bought the car when you guys were there. <laughs> Based yeah. on the currency exchange, maybe. You probably bought the car, yeah. And they're like, oh, what did you do whatever you want with it. We don't care anymore, but it's going to break down in 100 feet. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. I was just glad it was during the day. It was getting towards evening, but and I'm also glad it wasn't like a bazillion degrees. It was warm, but it could have been yeah. like way worse. It could have it, it could have been worse because we, yeah, but we were just stuck out there like no water, no cell phone service. Couldn't even charge our phones. Like it fire was, ants everywhere. Fire ants everywhere. And people so, drive crazy too. We're just pulled over on the side of it's a freaking freeway. And people are just whoom, like oh, 100 man. miles an hour past us. So not semis, the safest place. Semis are rolling by us like 18 inches away from the oh car. Like 80, <laughs> at like 80 miles an hour. The like, car yeah. is just rocking back and forth in the wind. Well, it's like we couldn't even be like on the shoulder. That's where the ants became problematic because we actually had to be like off of the shoulder the way people were driving. Yeah. 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 Actually, and, I started. Oh, that's God, we're I in ant territory. <laughs> We should maybe move away from the vehicle because I was so afraid of the vehicle getting hit and flying into us. So <laughs> it's quite the quite the experience. Quite the, yeah. quite the that experience. was the start of the trip. That what was a great way to start a trip. That was touching down. And that and that's like anyone who's ever made that trip just also understands like the full day of travel necessary oh, yeah. to get there. Like you you probably like to get for us to be there like in the late afternoon like we all got on like 5 a.m flights and you know if you had connections you had connections you had a, a straight through you had a straight through but it was it's like a full like 15 16 hours of travel like to get there by the time you combine the flights and the car ride at the end um, and the breakdown yeah. of the car the inevitable and, uh, breakdown and collapse yeah, yeah. so it's, it's it's interesting so I think I think something that I've, I've always been curious about is what got you into the stuff that you're doing now, like the the, the flex diet stuff and all of the the metabolic uh, certifications and those things that you're doing now. What what was your path to kind of get to this point? Yeah, I mean the semi <clears throat> short answer is I kind of started like most people lifting in high school. I was I think I've been six foot three ish or more since sixth grade and from sixth grade through <clears throat> my freshman year of college weighed about the same so I was the the eel-shaped rake at 156 pounds <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't one of those eel-shaped rakes with like the abs or anything I had like no abs and was kind of skinny fat on top of it which is I don't even know how that's possible at 6'3 156 but 56 <laughs> and it was definitely after puberty and I started college I'm like huh maybe I should start lifting weights. And I remember enrolling in a, a college class to lift weights. I was like, yes, someone's going to give me formal instruction instead of the high school uh, physical fitness test. You guys probably remember that where mm -hmm. that if you're really bad at it, like I am, they just laugh at you, but they don't show you how to train anything. They don't show you how to help at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, we did, uh, I think lifting for three days once. And it was like, let's test your max bench. And like the bar crushed me with like no weight. And, but they don't show you how to do anything with it. So it's just this like humiliation moment. And then you don't learn anything from it. Um, so fast forward to college. I'm like, yes, I get to learn stuff. So the guy walks in the first day and takes attendance. And he's like, all right, some of you may be here to lose weight. And he looks around and he points at me and he goes, and holy shit, some of you need to gain weight. 
<laughs> and I'm like, okay. I'm like, but he'll show us. This will be great. And then day two, he just left. Like the assistant just took attendance. He's like, I'll oh, just do stuff in the gym, whatever. I was like, oh man. So like most people, you do everything wrong for like better part of a decade. And I started taking classes. I'm like, well, I might as well take anatomy and physiology. And they had actual cadavers. And so I started taking more uh, classes in it. So that was from my undergrad. And then when I did my uh, master's in mechanical engineering, one of the coolest things is I walked into the exercise phys class. It was a 400 level class. And they just got it there. A brand new professor who did some stuff for NASA. Super cool guy. And I asked him, I said, hey, can I take your, your 400 level class? He's like, aren't you in the mechanical engineering department? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you're maxed out on credits. You can't add any more credits. I'm like, I know, but I just want to audit the class. He's like, so you want to audit a 400 level exercise phys class that's not even in your major? I'm like, yeah. Yep, I do. Why do you want to do this? <laughs> I'm like, because it's so cool. And he looks at me and he's like, well, technically I can't authorize you any more credits, but if you happen to show up like Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 10 a.m., I won't kick you out of the class. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> so it was great because I got to hang out and learn and and have to take any of the exams or anything like that. So and then once I graduated with my master's, I'm like, huh, maybe, maybe I should go back to school for this stuff. So I started doing a PhD program in biomedical engineering and <clears throat> yeah, did that for five years and then actually dropped out because I was spending all my free time going to exercise physiology conferences and pretty much annoying all the trainers in the back of the room because I'd sit down and I'm like, oh, what do you do? Like, oh, we're a trainer. I'm like, oh, cool. Did you see this one study about blah, blah, blah? They're like, no. Like, oh, but you saw the other study about the protein synthetic response to leucine and this and that. They're like, no. They're like, like I understood about 30% of the words you just said. Right. I'm like, but you guys are trainers. You read research, right? They're like, no, that's why we come to conferences. What, what the hell? Who the hell are you? And what are you doing here? <laughs> and so after doing that for five years in a row, I'm like, oh, maybe I should change my degree. But, you know, it's a sunk cost fallacy where you're you're so far into something. I only had two classes left to complete the uh, coursework portion. I hadn't started research yet. I was working for a biomed company at the time. So there's a lot of conflicting research because the lab down there was sponsored by a different company. So anyway, I dropped out to go over exercise physiology because I was really tired of doing math at this point, which wasn't my strong suit. I could, I could do it. I got a minor in mathematics, but it wasn't like, oh boy, math. And literally the first day with my new advisor, he's like, hey, we got two new projects and they both involve math. One's on heart rate variability and one's on metabolic flexibility. And he looks around the room and he's like, points at me. He's like, Hey, you math boy, whatever your name is. He's like, these are your projects now because most people in exercise phys just, you don't take a lot of math. It's just not a prerequisite unless you're doing motor control or something like that. Um, so that was 14 years ago. Um, yeah. So that's how I got started looking at metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability. That's, that's pretty cool too. Cause it wasn't like, so you, you were very interested in doing that stuff, but at the, at the end of the day, the stuff that you didn't actually want to do, which was more math ended up being forced on you because that guy, your, your advisor went, Oh, you're the, you're the nerd of the group. You can definitely right. do this one, right? <laughs> we can, you got this one. You can do math. Cause like, I can't do one plus one. Um, and yeah, that's and pretty it, it true. Became, it became something that you were super fascinated in and it actually turned into like a really good and really interesting career. Yeah, because at that time, no one heard of it. And I even admit, I, I'd read a lot of metabolism, read a bunch of stuff, took classes on it. And I 
when they first explained the concept to me, I'm like, okay, so who gives a shit? Like, why does this matter? Like, isn't that how your body is supposed to work? Mm-hmm. And so then I started looking at the literature and I'm like, oh, it doesn't always work that way. Oh, because if everybody had amazing metabolic flexibility, it never changed, then who cares, right? It's not really a big thing. It's not trainable. It doesn't, you know, come and go. It doesn't change. So it doesn't matter. Um, so then when I started looking at it, when the math we used wasn't, I mean, I wasn't say it was like super high level math, but it's a, a nonlinear analysis, which is more advanced than what most people deal with. So even my advisor, like to this day, still doesn't understand the math behind it. I worked with another guy underneath him, uh, but it was just a way to figure out that you could, all we did is take the same math used in heart rate variability. And we applied it to metabolism, looking at the RER, how well your body uses fats versus carbohydrates on a metabolic heart. So when you exercise, you breathe into that little tube, goes into the machine, and it'll give you a number with each breath that says, okay, here's your percentage of fat, here's your percentage of carbohydrates. So we took the same math applied to heart rate variability, and we applied it to that also. Did some studies looking at the effect of energy drinks. Does it change that? Does it not change it? Um, because I was trying to shoehorn performance-based research into a lab that didn't give two hoots about performance-based research. That's <laughs> basically how it was. And I had to stay within this, this topic area. So I'm like, let's use monster energy drink. And they're like, why are you doing that? I said, well, no, there's not much data on it. And the other part was I had to think of something that I knew would get published. I'm like, hey, if it turns out this does enhance performance to the general population, that's kind of surprising. Oh my gosh, energy drinks actually work and give you more energy. If it turns out that they just whack your sympathetic system, your blood flow goes to shit or something bad happens, ooh, that's kind of confirms their own, you know, confirmation bias. And it's a negative and everybody wants to hear about the negatives. So I figured either way, it'll hopefully get published because my PhD, I had to have three uh, studies that were submitted and published. And I found out the hard way from my third study that I spent a year and a half in the epi department, did the whole study. Long story short, I got the result and it said no effect. And so I go to the advisor and I'm like, Hey, we got the study done. I cranked all the data. Everything's done. You're half of my life. Woo-hoo. I got it mostly written. He's like, well, we can't publish this. I'm like, what, whoa, 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 hold on. What, <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> you can't publish this? This is what we found. This is the, the results. It hasn't been done. It's novel. We've, I've got 80% written up already. He's like, no, we didn't find anything. I'm like, no, we found stuff. It just wasn't what we thought. Yeah. And he goes, no, we're not going to publish it. It's still a result. (laughs) And so I argued with him for a week going, what the hell? And then eventually they said, no, we're not publishing it. Which meant that a year and a half of my life went kind of down the tubes. I got no publication and I still needed a third study for my PhD. So I had to figure that out too, which wasn't fun. So what you're saying (laughs) is a year and a half of your life became, basically became a three year mistake because there was oh, yeah. no there was no data from it. There was nothing that could be published. And then you had to repeat that exact same process again to get the third one done. Yeah. And luckily the, the, the shitty part was I was running out of time. So I had done every extension possible. So there was a, a hard seven year time frame, And I was in this full time. Um, and this happened in March. So my deadline was December 12th. So if I did not have everything done, everything signed off, dissertation done by December 12th, I literally got nothing. Like no PhD. I can't retro apply for a master's because it's a different oh, track. Oh God. And <laughs> you can't take your research somewhere else because your PI, your advisor, co-signs on all the research. So technically the, the University of Minnesota and he owns all of that data. 
Meaning that if I went somewhere else, some coursework may have transferred, but I noticed that all my research would have had to been started over again somewhere else. Oh God. So I was just, I had like a nervous breakdown in like May trying to figure out like what I was going to do. And luckily I got research from a guy who was a master's student there. I helped him with uh, data collection on it. And he, my advisor had this bad habit of just people would have an argument with them and they would disappear from the department. Like they would literally disappear. Like we never saw them ever again. Just walk out the door, like shit flying everywhere. And they were just gone. So that kind of happened to this guy. He disappeared. And so I had to track him down. What happened to Johnny? He's like, there was no Johnny here ever. Right. (laughs) Johnny was in and like There was never a Johnny. Right. (laughs) No one's there. So I got the data from him and then I was able to publish that. I had to get another written uh, note from him saying that he's never coming back for his master's degree that he's done with the university. So I had to get him to sign his life away and luckily was able to use his data that I actually helped him collect um, to, to graduate. So yeah, that was a little, uh, just a little bit of stress. I mean, couldn't <laughs> it's a, you it's a little just, stressful. Couldn't yeah. you have just done like a couple three day courses? Yeah. That would have solved all those that problems. That solves everything, right? You just, like, <laughs> just do a couple certs and, you, and you're good. I mean, then you get letters you after your name and have, shit. Right. You <laughs> arguably would have had more knowledge than you do now and have had a much less time commitment. Yeah, man. Yeah. Like, isn't that how it works? <laughs> Golly. Yeah. That's I have bad. people who literally would write me and they're like, oh, for the flex diet cert, if I finish it, what letters do I get? I'm like, I don't care. Whatever you want. But if you just want letters, like, don't take it like i don't F- want your money fd you get F- yeah. fd fd1 yeah 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 whatever you want to make up i i don't i don't care you know and i get why they're asking but you know it's like yeah you're kind of missing the point they want that they want that 100 character email signature after their name that's what they're looking for yeah it's funny one of um so we offer we've got ceu accreditation for our group project and one of our our people because we only we only did the accreditation through an SCA because most everybody right. will accept it if an SCA accepts it, and we didn't want to spend money with those other organizations. It's expensive. I'm we're, just we're, doing yeah, that we're, yeah, yeah, we're we're cheap. Shit. We didn't want to spend like an extra couple thousand dollars to get. We that. keep that overhead low over a couple. Yeah. Months. So so one of one of my uh, one of the people we went through was like so. I think it was it might have been Ace, but she was like so Ace is asking for like your bio. And I looked on your website, but you don't have any of your education listed. And I was like, well, <laughs> and I go, well, that's because they're all dumb. Yeah. And she goes, why? No. <laughs> it's like, I know you think that, but they're, they're asking for it. So I just like listed it out through like the DM thread. And she's like, and it was just like, I don't know, 20 acronyms or something. And she's like, oh, that's why you don't listen. I was like, yeah, like that's literally why I don't list them is because it's, I, I don't want to like, appropriate that you know is part yeah. of like qualifying myself as someone who's in this industry and and it's uh it's always interesting when you see the people who have it like on their their instagram bios which i've had in my in the past and i'm just like oh you're still at that spot like you you got all the letters you know after your name and it's yeah yeah i just list cscs and cissn and basically yeah. i just list them because that just eliminates a whole bunch of questions you know right? you listed another one though your instagram handle is dr mike t nelson so oh yeah one, i have a phd in there of course that one's yeah. listed of course yeah. of course yeah i, I would 100 percent list a phd yeah so would i i would go, i would go like old school pn and be like dr matt domney phd yeah like like, like just i give jv shit for that yeah. <laughs> and, and and i mean honestly you 
it sounds based on the story like you earned every single bit of that that actually so it was by far like the most stressful thing i've ever done in my life like my master's was way harder from a difficulty of material um because i did a master's in mechanical engineering but my phd was way harder just during the entire length of time of just getting adult fortitude of just you know because i didn't get along too well with my advisor so that didn't help um he didn't like my writing style so at the end once i got the final study done he's like i don't know but your writing really isn't that good and and honestly technical writing is not the best but with enough revisions i can get it to where it's 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 okay for submission and gets accepted um and so he's like i think you should go to the writing school i'm like fine if that's it cool i'll go to the writing school i'll live there i'll be there every day so i go in there they look at it and they're like they made like two changes they're like no this is actually really good i'm like okay so i go back to him give him a say i went to the writing school send him the copy he's like wow this is amazing this is really good and i almost caught myself i almost said well, they only made like two changes no, to just, it. Just, just, <laughs> and then I'm thank like, you. I'm like, thank you. Yes. Yes. The writing school, that was amazing. They were so helpful. I will live there. I will be there every day, whatever, whatever it takes. He's like, oh, I, I think you can actually graduate now. And I'm like, oh, thank God. This is like the end of June, you know? So from there, at least about I felt like I got a path. I'm glad they like, added that semicolon back yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, have you ever thought about writing him a letter like now and be like, just so you know, these are the two things that they changed on my yeah. paper that you hated. <laughs> the hard part is that there is an exit review. So at the end, the, the university was actually checking on people being there too long as PhD students just across all of academics. Because if you're a PhD student and you're doing graduate work, you, you're kind of like an indentured servant. That sounds really horrible to say. Um, but the goal is to keep you there as long as possible because you're just cheap labor. That's just the reality of it. Um, and so the longer they can keep you there, the more productivity they get out of you. It doesn't cost as much, blah, blah, blah. So the university was actually checking on progress reports. So we had to keep filling out all of the time. And the hard part is I look back and I'm like, huh, like how many PhD students actually graduated under my advisor the whole seven years I was there? Three. Oh shit. That's, does not look good at that's, all because they would that's... end up in some fighting match and they'd stomp off and they'd disappear and never see them again. Um, so the hard part is if, even if I did an exit review, which I actually decided not to do because there's only three people in seven years, I was the only one who graduated that year. How are they not going to know who it is? Right. It's yeah, anonymous. It's a... <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, and the hard part is like, you need your advisor to co-sign even potentially after, like if you go to academics, the first thing they're gonna do is they're gonna call your advisor and be like, hey, how is this guy as a student? Which makes complete sense. If I was an academic, I would wanna know the guy you worked for before, like previous yeah. employer, how did it go, right? So it's, it's, it's a weird system, which hopefully has gotten better. And especially now with everything being online and stuff changing, it'll be uh, quite different, but uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's one of those things that by, by process of elimination, I can be pretty sure this bad review didn't come from the two people. That right. <laughs> it probably came from the one guy who graduated now. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting. Cause I, like I'm probably in my last month of oh, my good. master's program. And that's awesome. And I've had several people like, Oh, are you going to like go to the, the PhD? And I'm like, no. Yeah. Absolutely not. Like I want my life back so badly. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting, especially like the writing, because 
as someone who has spent the last two years on like EBSCO host, writing is horrendous on most of these like peer reviewed journal. Oh, it's an actual study. It's pretty bad. It's especially when you peer review shit. Yeah. It's like, it's absolutely terrible. Like, so the fact that like, that's what was holding you back is funny to me because like I go through these and I'm just like, there's errors all because you'll like especially when i'm writing a paper like i'll copy and paste like cite like citations that i want to use and like rephrase yes. and it's just like red lines like through the whole thing based on where i like paste it into like microsoft word or, or whatever for for later review it's like oh like there's errors all through this thing spelling errors grammatical errors punctuation errors like all of it just errors yeah i mean i've had a few more than one peer reviews where i've been like okay you just need to fix all the grammatical, the English and everything else. I, d- I don't care how you do it, but I'm not going to go through and try to change everything. Cause it, some of them are so bad that it just, it's hard to read. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm not expecting technical writers to be perfect in grammar or have it be really exciting reading. But at some point it's just so horrendous to get through. It, it's just, you can't, you can't do it. <laughs> well, that's the thing is, it has to be readable. Like you right. can't just no. not be able to con- like to read any of it. And when it's like I've I've read some studies that are that are like that, where it's just the the writing is so bad. Like I'm not gonna finish this one. This is I'm just gonna take their word for it and just let them they write. Yeah, yeah. And the I whole mean, peer review process is interesting in and of itself too, because I think, especially sometimes when you get copied on other peer reviews. I remember once I did, God, I spent like five hours in this stupid ass peer review and had like three pages of stuff. And then they got copied on the two other peer reviewers. The one person, whoever it was, it was still anonymous. I don't know, wrote three lines. The other person wrote like four lines. I'm like, what? (laughs) Even sometimes when you submit stuff, like you'll get things back and you're like, one reviewer will have like really good comments, like very in-depth. I'm like, that's great. You made it a great paper. Woohoo. One person, um, was this done in a humidity-controlled environment? Uh, yes, we said that in line 54 here. Okay, good. That's it? That's all you cared about? <laughs> but whatever, it got published, so I'm happy, but you know. Thanks. Yeah. So yeah. the peer review process for that one was basically a throwaway question to just get their yeah. job out of, the, out of the way and get it done. I, yeah, and, it, and not that you want someone to peer review the peer reviewers, but it's just so weird how, and even like going through the whole PhD process, like we did peer reviewers, but no one actually literally ever sat me down and said, Hey, here's a process to go through and how to do a peer review. We would do them in, in meetings. And then it would just be this thing about how we did everything wrong, but nobody showed us like, what was the process to do? So when I was done, I actually, well, buddies of mine, I just asked them, I said, Hey, this is a dumbass question, but like, how do you literally do a peer review? Like, I know what it is. I know all the, the things, but like, what kind of process do you go through? Because oddly enough, no one ever told me. <laughs> Honestly, the, the, your friends were probably thankful of you for asking that, because if it's like you're saying, the standard for peer reviewing is, pr- it seems to be relatively low. Yeah. It, the hard part is it can be really good or really bad. Yeah. And there's, but it no... still counts. It all like Even if it's terrible, it still counts as a peer revered, reviewed thing. Yes. And even if the peer I've had instances where I submitted a paper where I'm pretty sure I was correct and the peer reviewer was wrong, but you ride this fine line of, I can't entirely piss them off because mm-hmm. they could just outright reject it. 
you know, and, you, and so you're trying to rewrite stuff and you're trying to point out other lines of evidence. And, you know, at some point you're just like, this person has a bias in this direction and doesn't want to see anything else. And there probably isn't anything I'm going to do to change their mind, you know, and I get, I get it. Like peer reviewers are human too. We're not all cyborgs just, you know, doing research, but yeah, it's a interesting process to say the least and highly variable. So when people are like, well, how did this get published? I'm like, I have a pretty good idea how some of that shit got published. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you exactly how. <laughs> it sounds like you, like when you, when you're talking about people not being cyborgs, it sounds like there was a little bit of like sadness in that saying, where, that statement, where it's like, I wish people were cyborgs with no biases to just get all this stuff published. Yeah. I get nervous when I've had conversations with very high level researchers, like good friends of mine. And I get really nervous when they're like, I don't have any biases. I'm like, of course you do. You're you human. Lying. It's okay <laughs> yeah, to admit lying. that you're a human, not a machine, and that humans will have biases. I get nervous if you don't know what your biases are, because mm. then you can't use the process of science to try to check your own biases. And, you, you know, I'm biased towards metabolic flexibility, but I read a study two months ago that said, well, maybe some of the early stuff David Kelly did was all shit because we've got better testing now. Doesn't mean the entire theory is bad, but it means that maybe some of the early data isn't interpreted as what we thought it was. And that doesn't mean that everybody goes, oh yeah, it's not a thing now and it's a horrible idea, right? Because in fitness, everything is like, oh, it's good, it's good. And then one study comes out that says, you know, fasted cardio may not be that useful. Oh my God, that's horrible. No one should ever do fasted cardio. What a stupid ass waste of your time, you dumb bodybuilders. What are you doing? And it's like, dude, that was like one study you know, done. And here's the caveats to that particular study. But when it kind of favors what people have already been thinking, then they just run around with this one study and they say, oh, oh look, see, this is the BL end all. But then you come up with one study that kind of refutes what they think. And they're like, oh no, that's just one study. That doesn't matter. Yeah. That one's totally like, you, wrong. You can't have like, like both ways, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, I, you just summed up the fitness industry yep. beautifully with, <laughs> Uh, basically, uh, TLDR, like confirmation bias and extreme pettiness is basically yep. what we deal with on a daily basis. Also, it's getting worse right now because you get like dumbasses like me who are starting to like learn how to read some research. Oh, and God. then we get that one paper and we're like, I don't care about your PhD. I'm better than you because I read one single paper. I, it's like, <laughs> did you read the limitations of the study? I don't know what that word means. No. Okay, okay Kyle. No. So no. <laughs> I read then, the abstract and the discussion. And yeah. it was, proved me right. So what I do you know? Skipped everything in between. It's okay. <laughs> and then you have the, the armchair experimentalists who are like, well, this is a dumb design. Why didn't they do this or this method? I'm like, it was probably a pretty good reason they didn't use that particular method. And it may have nothing to do with the actual science. It may do to cost logistics. Mm. It's like, hey, why isn't there more studies on elite athletes? Okay, one, who's going to pay for them? Yeah. And two, like when I was at the U, if I went over and talked to Cal Dietz, who's a good buddy of mine, I said, hey, buddy, I'm going to take eight weeks of your top level athletes and I'm going <laughs> to split them into two groups. This group's going to do this advanced method and this group's going to be a control. So they're going to do fuck all nothing. And then uh, how does that sound? He'd be like, get lost. What are you doing? That is the horrible idea. <laughs> I'm going right? to actually because try to make these people worse for a little bit. Yeah, right. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Because his job is he is paid to get them a result. He's not paid for me to have athletes to play around with with my own experiments. 
yeah. you know so even the logistics of if there's you know more money and everything else like just basic logistics of being in different organizations is going to limit a lot of that too well, that's what I, I try to explain to a lot of people whenever they see like fitness research, because people have this assumption that it is like done on high level trained people or whatever. And I'm like, nah. I'm like, they literally probably grabbed students yep. from the cafeteria Most times. and paid them $20 to come do this study. Yep. Like, like, that's what it was. And there's probably 10 of them. It's not a huge sample size. And it's yeah. one, one dude who's like, oh, of course, yeah, I've been lifting for like 15 years. It's like, no, you, you've never been inside a gym before. You don't know yeah. what that looks like. <laughs> it's just like, it's, it's not what you think it is. And there, there's, always, again, that doesn't mean you can't draw good information from it. But you need to have a better understanding of what the study was actually looking for, the population is being used and, and so on yeah. and so forth. And, and, and people again people want to hear it if it confirms their thought process they do not want to hear it if it does not confirm their their bias or narrative right and it's an easy thing to throw out if it doesn't match what they think to be like Mm -hmm. oh oh even for endurance athletes look at their vo2 max man it's only like 63 it's like that's pretty damn high is that elite level athletics no or for powerlifting. Oh, look at their totals, man. There's a bunch of wussies. It's, it's only like, a 1950 like, total. It's, it's like, a 1950. They didn't even break 2K, bro. <laughs> dude, your, it's like, yeah, dude, yours is 1120. Like, this person is way stronger than you. <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. So it, it's, and I admit, I mean, I, I did a study on energy drinks and used recreational exercisers. Yeah. Why? Because I could recruit them. Mm-hmm. Right. Because my biggest fear is I do this whole study. Right. And if you run your stats and you're kind of guessing on effect size and all this other stuff, if you don't recruit enough people because of the design that I had, I literally have no power and I have nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I don't hit my recruitment goal or I have a massive dropout or something I don't account for, I'm literally doing all of the work and I have nothing. So I'm going to hedge my bets on recreational based lifters and not go to a higher level just so I can complete the study and actually finish my PhD, you know, but that's not the thing people want to hear. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not my friend. It's that, that you just destroyed the myth of, uh, of research and, and the, the whole evidence-based crowd, I think at that point. Yeah. I think this, I think this actually transition transitions fairly nicely into our only scripted question. <laughs> Oh Which, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we actually something. have one. We have we one. one. We have We've one. Got one. We have one. We did. So we do like to lie to all of our guests in the beginning and tell you uh, we have nothing scripted. So that way, when we do give you the scripted question, we get like an actual answer from you. Um, but our one scripted question is: What do you see in the fitness industry that just like really grinds your gears, pisses you off, and bothers you? And if you want to name names feel free to name names. We'll just link them in the chat for the next one and we can just have a little debate. Yeah, yeah. And, and if it's us, like we forgive you that we... <laughs> yeah, we, we, I, we I already know I'm terrible. So like it's, if it's me, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I would say there's probably like two things that really kind of bother me. Um, one of them has gone on for like freaking eternity, right? It's, and I don't care if you use drugs, don't use drugs, whatever. You as a person, you have to decide all that stuff. I don't, I don't really care per se however if you're a high level athlete who has used a lot of drugs maybe your good genetics and then you're holding xyz supplement and claiming (laughs) this is all of your new gains 
at some level, I have to believe that people understand that that's just walking BS on a stick, but it can, it's continued for like decades and probably will continue for decades. And I don't have, and, and I know some of the people are like, Oh, but he's this top pro, whatever. Of course, everyone knows this. I'm like, I don't really know yeah. if new people know I, that person. I'm se. old enough to remember Jay Cutler shilling Celtech. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, <laughs> like that Ronnie it. Coleman email. It's like, yeah. how'd you put on so much fast? Oh, that there yes. Celtech. That there Celtech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you look at interviews of Coleman, who I, I love Ronnie Coleman. He, they ask him about what did he have post-workout? He's like, I don't know, like pancakes and chicken. You know, he doesn't even <laughs> he hardly use supplements, you know. <laughs> four, four pounds, five pounds of pancakes. Yeah, yeah. So that drives me nuts. And then the other part is the just everything has to be like super hypey. Like I saw something the other day that said uh, cardio is making you fat. Oh what? yeah, like the okay. So maybe cardio isn't the best way to burn fat or get leaner, but I don't really think it's making you fat. Like I don't understand what world of physics you live in, but that seems weird. So like the the big controversial statements that kind of go mm. against everything, Sound and bites. it's just to you know sell whatever product, ebook thing, and that whatever you're doing has to be much better, right? The next latest whiz bang thing is is the latest and greatest but yet you look at you know i like looking at a lot of um like old school physical culturists even stuff before like the 1950s 1900s even i mean there was guys with really impressive physiques lifting a lot of weights doing you know all sorts of crazy gymnastic stuff you name it and they didn't have nearly any of the things we have now mm -hmm. from drugs to equipment to supplements to whatever right and they did pretty good Right. So sometimes I think we get a little bit too into even, even like with exercise, like the, okay, you got to do a stabilized right hand row with your right pinky uh, supinated at the last 30 degrees of motion. And that's the key to hitting the upper outer part of the latissimus dorsi on your right side. It's like, okay, maybe, or maybe you should just do more heavy ass deadlifts and bent over rows and put a dumbbell on the ground and pull it to your hip. Yeah. You know, so I, and I get that those are accessory work and, and I think there's a time and a place for it, but I think people who are newer and see that don't understand that this is a more advanced technique. And most of the people doing that stuff have been lifting for fucking decades, like lifting heavy ass weights off of the floor and putting shit over their head, you yeah. know? So I think that that's not sexy and that doesn't sell either. And I get it that at some point, after you've done that for decades, it's not as interesting to you either. Yeah, fine. That's fine. But it, it seems to be promoted a lot of times as this is the next thing that you, you have to do this very minor esoteric thing. Yeah. Matt. So Matt and I actually talk about that a lot and that, and that's something like, especially as the last, I don't know, probably the last three or four years, maybe, maybe longer. And I just didn't notice it, but like the, the whole like biomechanics kick right where we have to kind of start like micromanaging like every joint action to get some kind of like physiological adaptation yeah it's like no that row didn't count like you said if you didn't squeeze your pinky or you didn't you know depress your scapula enough or you didn't retract your rib cage and you know exhale on the on the concentric and and it's like 
meanwhile the person's like it's a it's a grown adult like rowing 15 pounds right like <laughs> like what are we doing like we what skipped step doing? one right and and again like that's not to to advocate for you know again like lifting like excessive weight terribly like right again like you know there's a, a wide continuum of what's kind of acceptable and what's not from that perspective but that, that's what we see a lot of especially you know in li- a lot of the circles that we're in is it's just like a lot of people are lifting completely sub-maximally for these really arbitrary movement standards that aren't even high enough stimulus oftentimes to carry over to you know the sport or the activity if they play one or you know even like creating enough of a stimulus to create an adaptation right they're not stressful yeah. enough right it's just there's novelty so things seem difficult but they're not difficult from an effort perspective and people are confusing that a lot in, in my opinion i guess i should say i'll say opinion yeah and i i mean i've even gone backwards on this too where if you would ask me five years ago, I would have been convinced that external cues are better than internal cues. Cueing is the way putting people in position matters. And I think that stuff has its place for sure. Mm-hmm. But then I went, oh, wait a minute. Um, out of all the athletes I've tested and put them on a table, uh, how come their glute mead doesn't even seem to do what a glute mead should do to the extent that it should be, right? How come their glute max, I can push it down with one hand. Yes, I know all the you know muscle Mm-hmm. Uh, manual testing therapy as pros and cons and all that kind of stuff. But if you're not going to wheel the $60,000 biodex into my garage, <laughs> I don't have anything else to use. Right. And it matches what I see in their exercise. Right. Do you do something to kind of emphasize that and it just fall apart? I'm like, maybe we should just do stuff. So all the main muscle groups do what they're supposed to do first. And then we can add load to it. And then I don't hardly cue anything anymore. Yeah. And all the movement looks cleaner. It moves faster. The athletes feel their RPE goes down, heart rate goes down, HRV goes up. And I'm like, oh shit. Like I fell into this trap too of like looking for the magical cue, the magical position. Mm-hmm. And it's like, just have a really good baseline that everything moves the way that it should. Uh, like Kaldiz has talked about, if someone can sprint very effectively, that's probably a very good dynamic movement to look at someone and have an idea that everything is working the way that it should. So however you get there, there's multiple ways of getting there. And then let's add some load to it and see how it looks. Mm-hmm. Eh, I think that's probably a faster way of getting the result that people want without destroying themselves in the process too. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I have fallen down the same rabbit hole several times, right? Like oh, yeah. within, within different systems, you know, and I, I think that's what anyone who's been in the industry long enough and, and pursued enough, you know, whether it's acronyms or just different ideals or, or, or been a part of different tribes or, or whatever is, you know, a lot of us, in order for us to learn something well, we completely immerse ourselves in that. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, and because we immerse ourselves in it, it takes over everything we do and it begins to be the, the prioritization of everything that we do. And, and that's, that's something where I think, again, like I see, and I always hate like phrasing like this, because now, then I feel like the old get off my lawn guy, <laughs> but, but it's like, I'll, I'll see like, you know, again, like people who are just now breaking into the industry and they're kind of coming up in some of these models or these systems now very early on into their uh, career, simply because of, of social media and things that I didn't have access to when I, when I started training and because of that, like they're missing a lot of that, just like baseline experiential training mm-hmm. 
where it's like, you're, you're taking all these courses and you're ingesting all this education and, and material off of social media, but you're not actually like spending time on a training floor working with people to see if this yes. is realistic. And, and I think that's where, that's the thing that just gets me is like, I'll, I'll have people arguing with me or, or even like insulting me online sometimes where I'm like, you've trained under a hundred sessions in your entire career. Like, how do you yeah. know that this stuff, actually, <laughs> like, how do you know this stuff actually works and is practical on a training floor in that environment? Because it's really easy to go to a seminar where, you know, everybody's bought in and people are on tables and you're, you're, you know, you're taking coaches through some of these assessments man, that, that's not, you know, that's not the same as sitting on a, a crowded Globo gym floor with a hundred, 200, 500 other people walking around all these distractions and somebody who just flat out does not want to do that intervention. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not the same experience and that's, and you better have a backup plan if you're actually a coach on the floor in the trenches working with that person. Uh, and, and, you know, so that, that's something that, you know, we see all the time and, and we have a lot of people in our groups that are of all levels, which is great because we'll have people who have been in the industry for a long period of time that will also kind of validate that experience to younger coaches, like saying like, Hey, like this information's cool, but it doesn't always work. Like it, it's, it's not absolute. And there are, there are, there are plenty of other like co-variables that have to be in place for a lot of this stuff to actually be useful uh, on a training floor. And, and, but nobody, again, nobody gives that context in social media posts. And no, and, and people are afraid to, to test stuff. I remember years ago on <clears throat> Mike Boyle's forum, um, back in the day that <laughs> he would be absolutist mine, on something like, oh, no way, no way. a good buddy of mine was, was testing, uh, a sprinting start, right? So do you do a, a false or a plyo step or do you kind of fall forward? And so all these people at the time are like, no, you just, you know, fall forward, your leg comes out, you break the fall and that's how you start. And he's like, well, there's this one piece of research that says that the other way is faster. And they're like, no, no, no. Look at all this other research, how we've done this. And so he's like, okay. So he went and electronically timed a bunch of his athletes. And he's like, I had him do both ways. Uh, plyo step was a lot faster. They're like, no, 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 this isn't true. You did it wrong. You didn't test. He's like, well, how should I test it? What length should I do? So they give him all these parameters. He goes, okay. So he goes back, tests 10 more athletes, comes back. Uh, here's the athletes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Here's before, here's after. Plyo step was faster, like nine, nine times out of 10. And people were still arguing with him. And he's like, well, show me your data, right? Well, well who did you test? Like, what, what, what did you find? And he actually got kicked off the forum. <laughs> it's that? like, they were in the other, and we used were coaches who had access to, you know, relatively high level athletes who could time stuff. They didn't have, they weren't equipment limited. It was that they were afraid to actually test something. And he was actually wanted to know, he's like, I don't care what works. I just want to do what works. And from my testing, this is what I found. If you have other testing, um, yeah, please let me know. And they just argued forever. And then it was just a mess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and that's just even, this is the same thing now, now the, uh, the straw man that people throw up is, oh, you're just not as good of a practitioner as I am. Yeah. Right. Like that, that's yeah. the one that I also love is, is anytime that, you know, we, we question anything like any system systems that we've literally been a part of, you know, for, for five to seven years at this point, 
now now the big thing is people are just like oh well you're you're just not as good at it as i am that makes total <laughs> sense uh you know and i'm just like oh cool that's 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 the that's the line of thinking in, in the argument and rather than saying hey you know what maybe i need to look at this a little closer in this application uh they're just like oh you're just you're unqualified or you're not as good or you're not as smart as me and yeah so that's 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 my ranty pet peeve but we we jumped into yours a little bit there a little bit too yeah and i would add to that that maybe your system is a little bit too complicated yeah. maybe your system is not necessarily for the audience trying to apply it and mm-hmm. you know i love a lot of the pri concepts i think a lot of it is great but they will even admit that it's taught to primarily physical therapists oh, yeah. so if you're a new trainer and you barely know where the femur is like trying to figure out pri it's like good luck with all that yeah. you know so and then, you know granted i teach for rpr so i'm biased towards that direction but I don't know how many hundreds of people I've taught so far. It's a pretty simple technique that tends to work most of the time. Is it going to solve all your issues? No, but I think it'll probably work really well for a vast majority of them. And I've taught it to a whole bunch of people who are not hands-on practitioners, who are not that skilled, just don't have a lot of experience, but it's simple enough that they can usually get a pretty good result from it. But if you like complexity of systems, you won't like that because most of what you do can literally be taught in like two days, you know, now it takes a while to get better at it, but so there's the pro and the con of, if you almost make it too simple, now you go against the complexification of everything. And it's like, no, that can't possibly work. You you lose (laughs) the mystique. It's too good to be true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's something I wasn't even going to name acronyms, but yeah, that's, (laughs) that's a hundred percent what I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things where, again, I just, it's for me, it's not even the model itself. Right. Right. Because, because again, like there, there are plenty of environments where almost any model will be appropriately used. Oh, definitely. But it's the misapplication of the model within a task or an environment where it's not, where it was never intended to be a part of. Right. And that's, that's what we see. And like, we've gotten a ton of flack, like, by by people in that realm and people in that tribe for saying like hey this probably isn't the best thing for powerlifting and strength sports because it's a it's a rehab model with low stimulus and we have a, a strength sport or a power athlete environment where high stimulus is absolutely necessary right and if you're going to right. be applying any kind of intervention the stimulus kind of has to match what the task is going to dictate for it to work uh, yes. most of the time right and and meanwhile it's like we're seeing like a prevalence and like oh hey like that's the 12th torn quad that i've seen in the last six months from people who are working with this system in this environment i wonder if that's meaningful for anybody and and again it's like the the elephant that nobody will want to talk about so yeah and i mean any new system especially when i i used to do a whole bunch of hands-on stuff and then I realized that I was only testing people on a table and I couldn't figure out why these people kept coming back to me. (laughs) And one day I'm like, Oh fuck, I'm an idiot. Maybe. Okay. You're, I can make you amazing on the table, but you stand up, walk around the table and lay back down. And so I started testing people doing that. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh shit. Like all the stuff I've been doing for like four years doesn't hold beyond them standing against gravity and laying down 
Well, it makes me think this is going to hold up when you put, you know, four or five, 600 pounds on your back or try to pull it off of the floor. It's yeah. not. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing that I'll test is, and you know, it's not like a shameless plug for RPR, but for some of the RPR stuff, it actually did hold up under load, which still to this day kind of surprises the hell out of me. <laughs> um, but the question then exactly your point is whatever intervention you did, if you're going to add a stimulus and a high threshold load to it, is it going to stay mm -hmm. from that? Because what I found is higher stress will kind of quote, burn in or cement whatever changes you made, good or bad, mm -hmm. right? So if you're always lifting in quote, bad form, you're going to get better at that bad form, right? If you're lifting better form and you can add more load to it, you will literally hold that position longer because of the stress that you've applied to the system. So it's not a good or a bad, it's just whatever you're doing does make a difference. And as you scale intensity, it's going to make even more of a difference, potentially good or bad. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's something we talk about a lot with as far as like self-organization and, right. and, and physiological feedback, right? Where your body will create a default system, right? And, and it, it yep. really just has to do with biomechanical efficiency. Like homeostasis is going to be applied in almost every environment where it's like, okay, yes. well, if a system is too complex or a stimulus is too high, well, I'm just going to fall back into what I'm really good at because it takes less energy to do that thing. It's yep. more biomechanically efficient because that's the structure that I've created. Right. And, and that's where we see people that like become their sport, right? There, it's not, it, it's not a coincidence that most power lifters kind of look the same and walk yep. around the same and move the same. And most marathon runners, kind of look the same and kind of especially move on the same. high end yes. yeah well and that's where yeah not the outliers but like the people who do well the, you right. know, the people the people who are actually you know really trained and really good at their sport you see a look lot at crossfit yeah you you see a lot of the same adaptations based on those things and those tasks and and when you try to change that with somebody who is extremely trained one it's going to be really hard to do because you have to be able to apply a lot of stimulus because their task requires a lot of stimulus. And two, it might not actually be beneficial and it might create more problems than it fixes. Right. And, and that's what we see a lot of. And again, it's just misapplication more so than like, again, like the model being useless or a problem with the model. Like I don't think Ron Haruska 10 years ago or 20 years ago when he started PRI intended it to ever be used for power lifters. No, like, I don't think that even entered his mind at that point, but that's what fitness does. Well, if something's good over here, it's gotta be good over here Yeah, because it's good. Right. Quote unquote. And, and it's, you just see it everywhere. And that's, yeah, but people also take those courses and, are looking at the individual tasks and forget the principles, mm -hmm. right? So I took like four PRI classes. I thought they were great. But by the time I took the fourth one, I realized I'm not going to be a PRI master. I'm not a physical therapist. However, the principles of what he's talking about are pretty dead nuts right on. So maybe I can take the principles and how does he view the world and take some aspect of that and apply it to what I'm doing, mm -hmm. right? So even like, yeah, I took the whole occlusion course in cervical. I sat next to Ron the whole time. It was amazing. Do I remember anything hardly from it? In all honesty, not really. But the one thing I did get out of it is I'm going to ask about occlusion now. I'm going to look at their teeth. I'm going to ask what teeth make contact. 
And for example, if their eye teeth aren't contacting or their left molar isn't contacting, I'll put them on the table. Okay. Put a, you know, a spacer in there and then I'll retest them with that. And if everything goes from really shitty to like freaking amazing, okay, now I have a referral that I want you to go see this dentist. I want you to go explore this path. If what we're doing isn't making a result, mm-hmm. right? Cause you may have some other high level limiter somewhere. It might be this, but at least I can refer them into the right direction. And to me, that was like more than worth the cost of the course, you mm-hmm. know, even though I'm not doing a lot of the other stuff, you know, from it per se. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's always the thing for me because I'm the same way is it's, I've done enough of it to realize like what's useful in my training environment with the people that I work with. Yeah. And then, and then what's not and what I should refer out to other people for. Oh, and, definitely. And, you know, I think that's, that's where a lot of people misstep is they, they don't set those barriers, right. Where it's like, okay, like, cause for me, it's, it's literally, if I get somebody where it's a above the neck problem, I'm referring it out. Yeah. Like that's just not one, that's not my education level. It's not my scope. And two, it's not my interest at all. Right. Like, I do not want to do any of that stuff. Like, I don't care about your vision. I don't care about your dental issues. I like, it's just not, it's not what I got into training for. And I will gladly, gladly refer you out to somebody else and then get you back with some drills and start adding and layering training on top of that and be good about that. Yeah. I think that's good to, good to know. Cause the, the longer I've done training stuff, I guess I view myself more as a, a high level coordinator, you know, like mm-hmm. even just the amount of people, like even just basic blood work, you know, people are like, Oh, you should never look at blood work. That's horrible. I'm like, yeah, you can really screw stuff up and you can have definitely errors of omission if you don't know what you're looking for. But if you have some background, you've got someone to cross check stuff with, you know, even recently we found a lifter, uh, we're looking at her blood stuff and I'm like, this makes no sense. So I email Tommy Wood and I'm like, Hey man, can you look at this? Cause this doesn't make any sense to me. Her doc said she's fine. Her red blood cell count everything looks like she's a cyclist on epo and she's she's not you know (laughs) and he's like well we should probably screen her for uh obstructive sleep apnea so we got her sleep test turns out yeah she had you know some form of obstructive sleep apnea worked with my buddies at couples on that got her to a dentist in her area so now she's getting that or fixed her blood work is better her energy level is better so it's to me that's interesting to me because that's the integration of the system. And I, I totally agree that that's right riding on that fine line of, I'm not interfering with the physician. I'm not trying to say mm-hmm. he's he or she is an idiot, but I feel responsible for the athlete being that if we kept training her for six months and she's making no progress because she can't sleep worth a shit at night, you know, we were able to kind of figure some stuff out, you know? So it, it it's, hard because I don't even like talking a lot about that to new trainers because it's very sexy to be like, Ooh, I'm the trainer that looks at hormones. I look at blood work mm-hmm. and I look at visual stuff and I look at all this other stuff. And I'm like, maybe that's okay. You know, but it's, I also have the advantage of, you know, we're both old people. I've been looking at this <laughs> shit for like, you know, over two and a half decades now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So you tend to see stuff. And I'm also neurotic ADD enough when something doesn't fit it just it drives me batshit crazy and for even just for my own self I have to try to figure out what's going on if nothing else just 
to appease my own neuroses. <laughs> no, for sure. That's uh, I saw like a funny meme and I'm, I'm going to leave it at this, but I saw a meme today. So it sticks out to me, but somebody was talking about like, um, you know, one of the new things is like, we, we had the hormone coaches, but we've also got like the gut specialists. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things is like, oh, that's awesome. Where'd you do your residency at? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, residency, you're like, oh yeah, like an internist like goes through a four-year school and then four years of med school and then three years of residency. You did that, right? And they're like, yeah, no, I uh, did an online course. It's like, okay. Yeah. Oh, just want to make sure we're on the same page as far as what we're talking about here. Uh, so yeah, that, that I think out to me. having the first thing as new trainers listening to this, if you don't know, just get a referral network. Yeah. Like find a really good local PT, find a good, you know, psych person, find someone who's really good at maybe looking at blood work or sleep tests or movement or whatever. Like you don't really even have to know a whole lot. But if you know the person to get them to, they can tell you, yay or nay. Like yep. if I think someone has an eating disorder, I have someone, hey, you just talk to this person. Here's what I think is going on. I don't know. But oh, yeah, they do. Okay. So then you can, you know, work with that person. Yep. Or if, if it's a gut issue, I can call up Dr. Ruscio or Ben House or a whole bunch of other people and be like, hey, man, you just do a consult with this person. Or here's what I've seen. They said this, 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 and this. Is this something I should be, you know, worried about or whatever? Um, and I think that's just a really easy way to get around a lot of the issues, both legality and you don't have to solve all their issues, but yet you are solving their issue. You're getting them to someone who can yeah. get them the help and odds are they probably would not have gotten that otherwise. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, again, the difference between like a specialist and then somebody who can connect and I, we tell people all the time, like even one of the beauties of like COVID and one of the things that I think has happened really well is um, like, I've got a, a physical therapist, for instance, here in St. Louis that I will happily refer anybody local to. Yeah, he, He's amazing. Uh, he's a really smart guy, really, uh, again, ethical. Like I know his business, I just great guy. But then it's also like I have people that, you know, because I might talk to somebody who's in like the middle of Kentucky or something. And right. they, don't, they don't have access in person to, you know, someone who would be in my network. And it's like, okay, well, like I know Zach does online consultations. Right. I know like Jason St. Clair does online. Con like I have a handful of really good people that I can refer to them that they can do remote consultations with these people and they can get a lot of help at a decent price range and they don't have to be geographically located right next to it. And I think that's super valuable. Yeah. And that's, I agree. That's one thing that has gotten way easier. I mean, mm -hmm. from, I mean, you can get a pretty darn accurate at home sleep test now for around 200 bucks and maybe another 200 bucks to get someone to read it probably less than that. Yeah. You know, where before, you know, trying to get a PSG, getting into a lab, get insurance approval, blah, blah, blah. It, it, it was in the thousands, you know? So I get why some people, you know, weren't able to do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's getting, getting much better, which is good. Yeah. No. Awesome. So, uh, obviously, so Matt lost his internet. So that's, he oh, okay. That's I was like, I, wow, I really pissed him off. Did no, I win? No, that, that, that's why everybody, <laughs> uh, that, that's why he hasn't been talking. Uh, but we'll, we'll close it up and, you know, we always just want to make sure that everybody knows where to find you if you want to be found and where sure. to, again, read your articles, find you on social media, be able to potentially, again, like look for your services, things of that nature. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I thank you for everyone listening. Really appreciate it. 
Uh, best place is probably the newsletter. Like most of my content goes out through the newsletter. Uh, it's free to subscribe. Just go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. You'll be able to get on the wait list there. That'll put you on to the newsletter. Also let you know the next time the certification is open. I'll also let you know the next time the physiologic flexibility cert opens. Uh, so flexdiet.com and then add to the wait list. And then yeah, just hit the reply once you're on the newsletter and tell me you listen to this podcast and we'll send you a free gift too. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So, well, I'll close this up then. So thank you everybody for uh, listening in. And again, you can find us at compoundperformance.com or at either one of Matt and I's uh, Instagrams, which we'll tag into the profile as well. So thank you so much. And thank you, Mike, for coming on. It's always a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. This is always a good time to chat with you guys. Thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. If you liked this episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and drop us a review. We'll see you next time.